Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. We will be reading from Genesis 2, verses 20 through 25. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God, or the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. The man then the man said, "This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that you would bless your congregation this morning with your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray that you would allow us to see the massiveness of this passage, God. I pray that you would. Bless John's tongue as he comes up this morning and preaches to us. And I pray that keep us as we grow throughout this week. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This morning, uh, going to continue here in chapter 2 of Genesis, and, you know, uh, Pastor Matt uh, went over, he preached over Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25 last week, and he talked about how there was so much in that passage that there was no way to get to it all. So now we're focusing on just the last several verses of that passage, 20 through 25, and there's still so much in that passage we're not going to get to it all. Uh, so, um, and we can get to it all if you listen really fast. If you listen fast, you can get to it all by next week. So, as we go this morning, we are not going to try to exhaust this passage for all the richness and depth that God has in it. Uh, and it is an awesome passage that I get to focus on this morning. Uh, this passage covers uh, the establishment of the most important human relationship ever. Relationship of husband and wife. And of course, you know, the most important relationship ever is the relationship between Christ and his church. Uh, but here we're looking at a, a picture of that, actually. Uh, and so I want to talk about a couple other passages before we dive into this to, to see why I say this is the most important human relationship. Relationship between husband and wife. Not father-son, not mother-daughter. Those are important relationships. But why this one? as the most important human relationship. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, if you want to turn to Malachi, 
chapter 2. It's usually easier to find. It's the last one before Matthew. Uh, and he says this in verses 13 through 15. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So in this passage, it tells us that it is actually God who joins man and woman together as one. He also tells us the reason he does that, the reason he brings man and woman together as husband and wife, is because he desires godly offspring. That generational faithfulness as we as parents pass our faith down to our children. And we know that if, it, if it's something that God desires, then it is something that is good and right. Therefore, to produce godly offspring is a good and right thing and is a heavy responsibility, but also an incredible privilege to a mother and father. So this generational faithfulness is actually one of the greatest and most effective means of growing the church, capital C. So God joins man and woman, one, because he desires godly offspring, incredibly important relationship between husband and wife. And the second reason that the marriage relationship, I'd say, is the most important human relationship is actually perhaps even more essential than that passage out of Malachi. And it's very arguably the primary reason for marriage. And we find it in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 22 through 33. And it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is probably one of the most well-known passages on marriage. And in this passage, God makes it very clear that the marriage relationship is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And this is why it is so vitally important that we as a church diligently, vehemently guard the sanctity of marriage 
and, and go against the flow of culture. Uh, the culture wants to color how we view this marriage relationship. It wants to taint how we view the relationship between husband and wife, or maybe it's husband and hus husband, or wife and wife. It wants to taint that image that God so clearly paints for us that marriage is to be the image, the reflection of Christ and his church. The world has no desire to see Christ and his bride reflected in the marriage relationship. And they violently fight against any effort to do so. They twist and pervert uh, biblical concepts and definitions of words. Uh, for example, it's probably a safe bet that there were several people who when I started with verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, that some people are like, where is he going to go with that? Oh, I don't know. If I'm, what does he mean by that? Why? Because the world has taken, and even people within the church, when I say the world, I mean people, has taken what submission means and twisted it. Do we have a negative reaction when we hear it? Uh, and if you're one of those people who are a little concerned, what's, where is he going to go with that? Nowhere this morning. It's not the purpose of the passage in Genesis. So you don't have to be concerned where I'm going with that. But it does show how easily we allow the world to dictate to us the definition of biblical words and concepts. Let God define biblical concepts. Let God define biblical words. Because how many of you believe that God gives a command that's good? Therefore, is submitting good? Yes. But what does it mean? So, the point of looking at these two passages, Malachi and Ephesians 5, is to emphasize the importance of the marriage relationship that we see established in Genesis 2. And I think that's why Satan and the world fight so hard to twist and destroy marriage, because it creates godly offspring. And it's the reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. So with that, let's dig into today's passage. And uh, verse 20, it says, The men gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And, and this points us back to verse 18, uh, where it says that, uh, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And don't mistake the passage for saying that something occurred to God. Um, like, but, oh, wow, you know, he looked at, in verse 18, the Lord God said, Oh, you know what? I probably should have made something for Adam, too. I mean, I did it for all these animals. I, I probably should have made it for Adam. I, don't mistake the passage for that being what. God is doing. Uh, did God already make all the animals in pairs? Yes. So procreation wasn't a hindsight kind of thing for God. It was what he had planned from the beginning. So it's not that verse 18 is saying God's going, wow, I didn't think of that. I should probably do the same thing for Adam as I did for the animals. Uh, and and uh, don't mistake it either for God going back and say that we, he had previously what he had previously declared as very good, now he's going, oh, I guess it wasn't as good as I thought. You know, we read the passage where it says, uh, it is not good that the man should be alone. And we go, well, didn't God say that it was 
very good. So now he's saying it's not good. How many guys have ever wondered about that? I know I've had several questions like that. Uh, let me read something from Charles Spurgeon. And again, this is Charles Spurgeon. He likes to use fun words. So, neither is it needful to wonder how God should pronounce that to be not good, which he had previously affirmed was good. So remember, back in Genesis 131, he said, and it was very good. Now we're in chapter 2, and God's going, it's not good. So, uh, the divine judgment of which the preceding chapter speaks was expressed at the completion of man's creation. This, while that creation was in progress. In other words, is what Pastor Matt has been telling us every week. We tend to read chronologically. Chapter 1 takes place before chapter 2, which takes place before chapter 3, and you follow this timeline. And so that's why we sometimes we wonder, well, if, if in chapter 1 God said, behold, it is very good, how can he in chapter 2 go, it's not good that man is alone? Didn't God just say everything was very good? Chapter 2 doesn't occur after chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives us a view of the six days of creation. Chapter 2, this beginning part, or, yeah, this last part, chapter 2 gives us an in-depth look at day 6. So when he says it's not good, this isn't after he said it is very good. This is before he said it is very good. He said it is very good at the end of day 6. He says it's not good that man should be alone during day 6. Some people point to that as God contradicting himself. Well, I thought he said it was very good. Why is he now saying it's not? He's not. It's an improper reading of scripture uh, and putting our linear perspective, this is how things work, and applying that here. Remember, chapter 2 doesn't take place after chapter 1. It's looking back at chapter 1 at a specific thing within chapter 1, within day six. So he says, it's not good that man should be alone. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Mandela effect? I know Justin has because we talked about it yesterday. Anybody ever heard of the Mandela effect? Um, before I talk about it, uh, how many of you remember when Darth Vader said to Luke Skywalker, Luke, I am your father. How many of you guys remember that? Yeah, most of, most, most of us probably do. Uh, it's a shame that Darth Vader never said that. Right. Kind of like, yes, he did. I watched Empire Strikes Back. Cuts his hand off. He's like, you killed my father. Luke, I am your father. He never said that. People will go to their grave going, yes, he did. No, what he actually said was, no, I am your father. He never said Luke. Now, it may seem like a, a little thing, but you talk to just about anybody with pop culture, and they will swear they remember when Darth Vader said, Luke, I am your father. Never happened. Uh, how many of you guys have ever eaten Jiffy peanut butter? No, it doesn't exist. Jiff does. But people will, no, I've eaten Jiffy. I know it. The Mandela effect is when there is a... Uh, a large population of people who distinctly remember something that never actually happened or wasn't ever true. But a large population goes, yes, I remember it. 
It comes from Nelson Mandela. People all around the world will, will swear by the fact that they saw the news coverage when Nelson Mandela died in a South African prison in the 1980s. He lived until 2013 and died a free man. But to this day, people will swear, no, I watched the news. And that's people around the world. It's called the Mandela effect. Now, we see here where it says, and God saw that it was not good that man be alone, right? No. It doesn't say that. But that's how we, so many people, remember it. And God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. It doesn't say that. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. How many of you guys appreciate a warm blanket on a cold evening? All right, keep that in mind for a second. If this passage said that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, uh, it would tell us that something occurred to God, where God said, oh, you know what? Looking down here, I realize it's not good for man to be alone. Does anything occur to God? Does he ever have to realize something? Or does he already have a perfect plan based on a perfect and exhaustive knowledge of all things? If you want a hint, the second one is the right answer. He already has a perfect knowledge. So he didn't see something and then have to respond to what he saw. He was not stating some occurrence to him, an occurrence of thought, then God saw, oh, it's not good. No, God was stating a truth of being. He was stating the fact that it was not good for man to be alone. And then he brought all the animals to Adam's name. And verse 20 says, but for Adam, there is not found a helper fit for him. Now back to that warm blanket on a cold evening. Uh, we have a big basket of blankets by our couch. And on family movie nights, that blanket gets emptied quickly. Everybody's like, oh, that's my blanket. That's my blanket. We like to wrap up in our warm blankets because it's, it's just cozy. It's nice. How many guys think if it never dropped below 95 degrees, we'd feel the same about warm, fuzzy blankets? <laughs> the cold, or the lack of warmth, causes us to appreciate that which supplies warmth. When we realize our lack of something, it helps us to appreciate when that lack is provided for. By bringing the animals to Adam, God made Adam aware of the fact that he had no suitable helper. And by realizing the lack of a suitable helper, it helped him truly appreciate the gift that Eve was when God brought her to him. Uh, there are times when we're not aware of our own need, our own lack, until God makes it clear to us. That's called salvation, actually. That's part of salvation. We are not aware of our need for a Savior. And then God opens our eyes to the truth of our own sin, in his grace, in his mercy, calls us to himself. But left on our own so many times, we are completely unaware of our own lack, of our own need. But God is always aware of our needs. He was always aware that Adam needed a helper. But he was making sure that Adam understood, you need a helper. You have a lack. 
verse 31 of chapter 1 says, God set everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And again, this is at the end of day 6. He had already created both Adam and Eve. So he looked at Adam and Eve, man and woman, and said, this is very good. Gender, that is maleness, femaleness, is God's idea. And he is infinitely wise. Gender is part of the beauty of his immaculate design. Man and woman. Uh, and notice verse 26 back there. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's verse 26 of chapter 1. Uh, the Bible doesn't start with the differences between men and women. It doesn't start there. It starts by saying we are equally created in the image of God. And this is the foundational truth about all of humankind. All men and women, we are created in the image of God. Nowhere does the Bible say that men are more God's image than women or that women are more God's image than men. Uh, and from its very first page, the Bible opposes uh, the errors that we've seen of, of sinful male dominance, uh, subjugation that we see in many cultures historically, even today. Uh, where cultures subjugate women. Uh, the Bible also opposes the modern idea of feminism, uh, which holds that there's no difference between men and women, uh, and that when it comes to uh, women's roles in family and marriage, those are just social constructs. They're, it means nothing. The Bible opposes that idea as well. Uh, the Bible opposes the idea that men are half-witted oafs who would be incapable of doing anything were it not for their wives. If God defines us as equal in value, then you know what? That forever settles the question of personal worth and value. Men and women are equal in value in the eyes of God. Neither one is better or more important than the other. And that should forever settle subjugation on the part of men toward women, or the idea that uh, men are incapable and incompetent apart from having a woman on the other side of the spectrum. We are all created equally in the image of God, and all of us equally carry that stamp of who he is. Now, it does say that God created woman to be a suitable helper for man. And because of the abuse of this passage by men and uh, both within the church and humanist secular ideals of women in the modern feminist movement, many people kind of bristle at the thought of this passage. What do you mean woman was created to be a helper? Uh, is it because this idea of woman being a helper is some antiquated idea? Is it because it promotes the subjugation of women? Uh, is it because it lowers the status of women to just being mere servants to their husbands or to men? Is it because it elevates men as superior to women? No, none of that is true in this passage. It's because people haven't taken the time. The reason people bristle at this is because they haven't taken the time to dig in and see what God actually means when he says that he created woman as a suitable helper for man. It says helper, not assistant, not servant. Uh, one aspect of the Hebrew word that's often overlooked uh, a Hebrew aspect of this word for helper is that it is it means one who completes. 
In other words, God was making for Adam one who would complete him, one who would make him whole. Uh, men and women, again, are each created in the image of God, and we each display unique aspects of that image that are incomplete without the other. When man and woman are brought together, they're able to more fully reflect that image of God that is stamped on each one of them. And this is one of the most beautiful aspects of what it means for woman to be man's helper, that together they, they wholly reflect the image of God. But there is also another aspect of this word that does fall more in line with uh, what most people think of when they think of a helper, even though they then twist that uh, into something that was never intended to be. And that is that it also does mean one who comes alongside to aid. One who comes alongside to aid. And that should be a slide. You don't, do you have a copy of my notes? Okay. Found it. Found it? All right, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't sure if I put a copy up there or not, I'm sorry. I'll kind of help you along then. Uh, when Jesus and Paul uh, talk about things like marriage and men and women's roles in the church, they often go back to this passage in Genesis. Uh, and they show that this passage, passage expresses a, a universal uh, truth and a, a timeless truth about men and women. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we see men and women depicted as equal bearers of the image of God, but with distinct strengths and unique qualities in fulfilling God's creation mandate. Uh, subdue the creation, have dominion over it, be fruitful, multiply. Uh, there is a leadership role for Adam in the marriage. He's responsible for conveying God's law to her. Uh, remember, God gave Adam the one law, do not eat from this tree, before Eve was created. Adam had a responsibility to pass that law on down to God, or on down to Eve. Uh, God will hold Adam accountable for that sin, even though Eve is the one who ate first, because Adam should have been the leader that he was meant to be. Therefore, God holds him accountable for that first sin, even though it was Eve who ate first. It was Adam's responsibility. He says that it is man who will leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Then uh, that means Eve, woman, is that anchor for the family. She is the emotional anchor for the family unit. Uh, we learn that um, as being, for being man's helper, it is a lofty calling. Again, not servant, not uh, assistant, helper. But we see it as a derogatory statement. Uh, we think, how many guys, if somebody said, oh, the help will be here soon, you know, like in a, an aristocratic home. The help will be here soon. What are they talking about? The maids, the butlers, the cooks. They're, they're the help. It's seen as a lower station in life. I want to read some passages for you. Uh, this is out of Psalm 54. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Hebrews 14, 6. So we can confidently, confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, who in these passages is considered the helper? God is. Does that mean that God holds a lower station than us? Obviously not. So this idea of helper being a lower station is completely inaccurate. It's what the world says about the helper. It's not what God says about the helper. Uh, we had a drainage problem in our basement uh, about a month ago. And by that I mean sewage in our basement. So not the funnest thing to go downstairs and see. Uh, and a friend came over to help me take care of it. He, he helped me. And what that meant in practice is that he came over because I had no idea how to fix the issue and I needed him. And, and him helping me meant, could you hand me that wrench? No, that's a tape measure. I said a wrench. You know, that, that was, that's what I mean when I say he helped me. I needed him because I had no idea what to do to fix the issue. And so without him as my helper, I would have never been able to do anything other than call a plumber. So being a helper is not a lower station. It is a station that is held because that which needs to be achieved cannot be achieved without the one who is the helper. It is actually a position of being essential. It's not assistant. It's not servant. It's being essential to the relationship. So let's get out of our heads the idea that the world puts in it that when we say woman was created to be man's helper, oh, Oh, you mean servant, assistant. No, we mean that God created woman to be essential to the fulfillment of his plan for the ages. Just as essential as man is. The physical differences between men and women, uh, speaking on the macro level, so in other words, very generally, broadly speaking, reinforcing these distinct roles. Men's bodies with statistically higher levels of testosterone, strength, uh, mental proclivities, tend to be more ordered toward creation tending and uh, exercising dominion over creation. While women's bodies and mental proclivities tend to be ordered more towards family building. This isn't to say that there can be no deviation from these. But these are the God-ordained, this is the God-ordained design within the he created us differently so that together we would fulfill the mandate he gave to Adam and Eve. Exercise dominion over the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. And then verse 21 says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it to a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, there is a popular statement that kind of stems from this verse, and it, it goes like this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It is an eloquent statement, and it has some underlying principles of truth. But I want to tell us we should beware of statements, even when they have a foundation of truth, that attribute to God motivations or purposes which he himself doesn't articulate in Scripture. Um, God nowhere in this passage 
gives any reason why he chose to make Eve from Adam's side instead of his head or his wrist or his leg. Or, he gives no reason why he did it from his side. So the preaching and teaching of statements like that one I just made as Bible truth. Now, if you want to make it, oh, this is a poetic thing, sure. When we say this is why God did something and we teach it as truth, it's what leads us to believe slight, uh, that spare the rod, spoil the child. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. None of those are scripture verses. But it state when we teach something as biblical truth that isn't, it leads us to believe things are biblical truth when they're not. Now, again, that statement does have some truth in it. Uh, does God lay down the scriptural principle that a husband should not domineer his wife? Yes. Does God lay down the principle that the wife is not to exercise authority over her husband? Yes. Uh, does Is it a biblical principle that man and woman are equal in value and worth? Yes. Uh, does God make it clear that a man is to protect and love his wife? Yes. Ephesians 5 and Genesis 1 are really the only passages we need to show all of that. But are all of these things made clear in this verse by telling us God's motivations for making Eve from Adam's side? No. Nowhere. So let us use scripture that actually speak to an issue, to a principle, to be our reason for believing these principles. Uh, and not just an emotionally or uh, an emotionally satisfying or eloquent statement or, or sermon point that isn't dr actually drawing from the passage itself. And it's a beautiful statement that has some underlying truth, but it's taken from a passage that says nothing about that. So let's be careful how we, how we handle Scripture. Uh, I often talk about the fishtail effect, that you know if you start to fishtail in your car, and you don't correct it, that fishtail gets bigger and bigger till you're spinning out of control. So some would say, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it is true otherwise in Scripture, so why can't you just use this passage and say that? That's the little fishtail. When do you decide that it needs to be corrected? The best thing to do is to correct it as soon as it starts. So, all right. It says here in that verse that... Uh, the rib of the Lord got it taken from the man. He made it to a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, God didn't leave Adam to find Eve or stumble upon her like he trips over and goes, What's that? Whoa, looky there. Where'd that come from? It, it's not that. It says God brought her to the man. God brought her to Adam. And the connotation of the word or the phrase brought uh, has the idea of a solemn presentation uh, as with a covenant. Not just God going, hey, Adam, look what I made. Show and tell time. What'd you make? It, that's not what it means when it says that God brought Eve to Adam. The word means God solemnly brought her to him as in a covenant. It was a solemn occasion, a solemn presentation of a suitable helper to the man. And this is why Marriage is a sacred covenant, and why no government has any authority to change what it means. 
the covenantal relationship of marriage was not thought of or created by man. It is a God-created relationship, and therefore God alone has the right to define it. And in Scripture, he very clearly defines it as a covenant between one man and one woman. Whenever the marriage relationship is spoken of as far as how it should look and work, it's always in the context of one man and one woman. Uh, and some people point to things like, well, David had more than one wife. And look at Solomon and all his wives and concubines. Now, is that true about David and Solomon? Yes, absolutely it is. But if you look at those passages, you're going to notice that they are simply saying what those men did. It's, God never says this is the right way to do it. It simply records what happened. In other words, it's a descriptive passage. It describes something that happened. It doesn't say that's what we should do. It simply says this is what happened. But when Scripture does speak of this is the way it should be done when it comes to marriage, it's always one man, one woman. It's called a prescriptive passage. I think Pastor Matt actually talked about it last week. Um, descriptive, prescriptive. When God gives a prescription for how marriage is to be done and what it should look like, one man, one woman, even though we see the actions of men described elsewhere in Scripture that are contrary to that, whenever a command or a model is given for marriage, it's one man, one woman, united in a covenant relationship. Period. Therefore, no man has the authority to change that. And it's heinous that they try to, but it's also laughable because as we sang this morning, there is one king. Kingdoms rise and fall. Man-made laws and standards rise and fall. But there is one king. There is one king. And then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, Adam says, at last. In other words, he was well aware at this point of his need. He had looked at all these animals who had mates, and now he's like, at last, someone like me who is not me. Uh, as Master Point, Master Point matted out last week. <laughs> as Master Matt pointed out last week, uh, the creation of woman was unique in all of creation. Uh, it, it says that out of the ground, God formed the animals in Adam. But woman was created out of Adam, taken from his side. Uh, is this because woman is more special or more important or more unique. Again, no, we are all equally created in the image of God. It's not that God is saying, oh, I created everything like this, but woman is more important. That's why I created it. The reason God created woman uniquely is because the relationship between a man and a woman is unique in creation. It's unique in creation in that Wolves are, you know, they're monogamous. See, aren't they like reflecting the image of God? No, they're not reflecting the relationship between Christ and his bride, even though wolves are supposedly monogamous. 
man and woman together have a unique relationship that no animal shares. No animal was created out of another to be the same yet different. That is man and woman alone. As Adam's statement underscores, uh, it, it's an incredibly important theological foundation uh, to fulfilling God's intent for the family. Flesh is my flesh. She's one who is like me in essence, but she was taken out of man, but she's not the same as me. Like me in essence, but different. Uh, you can go ahead and go to the next slide there, Wanda. Uh, she was taken out of him so that God could covenantly reunite them as one flesh to more fully reflect his image. All started out as just Adam, and out of his flesh was brought another. And then God covenantally unites them to once again be one flesh. That doesn't take place in the animal kingdom. That takes place with humans and humans alone because of the uniqueness of how woman was created out of man. And uh, here's an analogy to help us maybe understand this. And keep in mind, I think it was Pastor Harold who shared, might have been in Sunday school, but all analogies have taken too far to break down. So, so keep that in mind here. Um, you can bring up the next slide, Wanda. Red and yellow are the same in essence. Uh, they're reflections of the light spectrum, uh, and it enables us to recognize and appreciate the world around us. So in essence, they are same in essence. But they are different in how they reflect light. They each give a different yet incomplete perspective of the light spectrum. Each in quality and worth, but different. Okay, Wanda? So here is a sunset with only the red spectrum. Does that accurately, accurately reflect a sunset? Have you ever saw a sunset on water that looked like that? All right, here's a, another one where it's just from the yellow spectrum. Again, it's not an accurate reflection of what a sunset actually looks like. All right, Wanda? Now here's a sunset with both the red and the yellow spectrum brought together. And it accurately, accurately reflects what a sunset looks like. When you get red with red or yellow with yellow, you don't have an accurate reflection of sunset. It's only with red and yellow that you get an accurate reflection of what a sunset is. Man was not taken out of man to be reunited in one flesh by God. Woman was not taken out of woman to be united by God into one flesh. A man and a man together cannot reflect the wholeness of the image of God. A woman and a woman together cannot reflect the wholeness of the image of God because neither was taken out of the other in order to be reunited by God in one flesh. There are no differences between them to complement and complete. There's only sameness. So the manner of woman's creation underscores the uniqueness of the relationship between man and woman. It wasn't the bringing together of two distinct creations like a cow made from the ground and a bull made from the ground. It was two creations being brought together because they were one flesh to start with and they'd be brought together to be one flesh again. 
Again, all analogies break down. I'm, I actually thought of several problems with that analogy myself, but I'm not going to tell them to you. All right. <laughs> so with that, with today's culture, this, it says that gender is a social construct. The idea of gender is just a social construct. The Bible disagrees. The Bible makes it clear that gender is a divine construct. And as such, it is not subject to the whims and ideas and opinions and ideas of men. A person saying something does not make it true. God saying something does make it true. Therefore, if God says it, that settles it. A person's belief or disbelief has no bearing on whether or not it's true. It's not a God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it. And he says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As Pastor Matt pointed out last week, Adam didn't have parents to leave. So this is something Moses wrote uh, to emphasize the basis of the family units. Uh, Adam didn't leave any father and mother because he didn't have them. Uh, so the, the so-called nuclear, nuclear family, uh, or some people say nuclear, uh, it, it is nuclear. The nuclear family is not a modern construct. This is what we see here in the very beginning. It is not a, a social construct any more than gender is. This is a divine construct. A man and a woman joining a covenant relationship, making their own family, is a divine construct, not a social one. And it says, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, anybody here do woodworking? A few of you? If you glue a couple boards together, when you try to pull them apart, good luck. Uh, you'll have to get a chisel or a cat's claw or a crowbar, and it will take some sweat and some effort to get those boards apart. And even then, you're not actually getting them apart because the glue will actually pull chunks of wood out of the boards. Because that glue is actually stronger, the bond that that glue creates is actually stronger than the wood itself. When it says hold fast to his wife, that's where we get the, the word for glue in Hebrew. It's saying, uh, a husband will glue himself to his wife. It is an incredibly strong bond. It is an incredibly strong bond. We're not just talking about, oh, I really like her. I think we'll have a lot of laughs together. No, it's, I am gluing myself to her in this bond that is stronger than each of us, than either of us. It is an incredibly strong bond. And as we read from Malachi earlier, and as we see here in God bringing Eve to Adam, and then in Malachi where it says that he is the one who joined them together with a portion of his spirit, the reason this bond is so strong is because it is a bond that God himself has ordained. It is a bond that God himself has initiated in covenants, an incredibly strong bond. Uh, and this is why divorce is such a painful thing. Just as when you pull those boards apart, it, it pretty much destroys the boards. That's why divorce is such a difficult and painful thing and why it was never God's intention from the beginning. But that's a, for another time. Uh, 
this verse also speaks to the authority of a man. Uh, man up to this point, uh, a man up to this point of marriage, in one way or another, he's been under that umbrella of authority of his parents. But when he gets married, he's stepping out from under that umbrella of authority and creating his own family where he is now that umbrella of authority. Uh, so, and again, I know as soon as I talk about a man being the authority, because of mischaracterizations of it all, some people, like I'm not comfortable with you saying the man is the authority, but again, I promise you it's not because it's a bad thing. It's because the world has made it a bad thing, and even the history of the church has played out making it a bad thing. Uh, and there will be a time that we can talk about that more. If you have any questions about it, please come and talk to me. Uh, again, in today's culture, that's being defined when somebody's your authority. It's defined as them being superior to the other. Uh, but in Sunday school this morning, we talked from Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Jesus humbled himself under the authority of his Father. Is Jesus fully, truly God? Yes. So is he less than his Father? Is, is his Father superior to him? No. But he chose to submit himself to the authority of his Father. Not because of any value or worth measurement but because that is what was right. So again, submission to authority, being the authority, it's not a bad thing. It's just been so abused, so abused. Authority simply has to do with a difference in roles, not value or worth or anything else. It is simply a difference in roles. Again, uh, love to talk to you more about this if you have any questions, but I wanna move on to what I really think is the point of this whole passage. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says that all Scripture points to him. And so if we take a passage like this and make it all about husband and wife, we've missed the point of the passage. Yes, this has a lot to say about husband and wife and the foundations of marriage. But ultimately, all Scripture points to Jesus. And that's why in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about the relationship between husband and wife, he goes back and quotes this, uh, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother, leave him to his wife, and two shall be one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is great, but I say it is concerning Christ and his church. So yes, this passage tells us the establishment of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. But as we learn from the whole of Scripture, the purpose of that is to point us to the relationship between Christ and His bride. That everything we are as His bride is taken out of who Christ is. Everything about us as His bride is taken out of what He has done for us. So, awesome things to learn here about marriage and men and women, and how we're created. But let's not miss the forest for the trees. The biggest thing about this passage is that it points us to the relationship we have with Christ. A bond so strong that it can't be broken. That Christ has glued us to him. Do you get that? what that means? There's no going back to Jesus. I mean, for, as far as he's concerned, there's no going back. He has glued us to himself in an inseparable bond as his 
bride. That's incredible to me. And then when it says that and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, it's, it's another reflection of when it says in Ephesians 5, he wants to present us blameless, spotless before his Father, where we can stand completely exposed to the Father with no shame, no, no guilt, no condemnation. We can be completely transparent before our Father. And there is nothing that anyone can point to to say we are tainted. This is such an incredible picture of Christ and his bride. And let us not miss the point of it because our culture wants us to pick apart certain things in this passage. It's not about our culture. It's about Christ. Praise him if you want to come on up. Again, there is so much more in this passage. And honestly, everything I've said is like a very brief overview, giving a point by point, like a play by play, without really going into a lot of it. Uh, so you may have a lot of questions. Text them to us. We'd love to answer them. I, I, I would love to let Pastor Matt take care of those questions for you this week. <laughs> uh, but yeah, text us the questions. Uh, any questions you have, any comments you have, we'd, we'd love to go over those in the podcast. But husbands and wives, I want you to consider how does your relationship reflect Christ? First, to your family, to your children. How does your relationship reflect Christ to your children? Man, I'll say, Karen and I have had a lot of conversations, and I... I don't do well at reflecting Christ to my children and our marriage relationship. Where are you at this morning on that? How is your relationship reflecting Christ to your children? And then how is your marriage relationship reflecting Christ to those around you? And for those of you who aren't married, you're not off the hook. Yes, it is a marriage relationship that reflects Christ and his bride. But scripture makes it clear that all of us are ambassadors of Christ. Every single one of us are representatives of Christ. So you may not be married, but you still represent Christ in every relationship that you do have. How are you reflecting Christ in your relationships? Married, not married, with children, without children? How are you reflecting Christ in your relationships? There are some family discussion questions in your bulletin. I I should say household discussion questions, not family discussion questions. They're household discussion questions. Whether you're single, I guess for single, they're not discussion questions. That'd be weird. Um, but they're questions for you to think about, uh, to go over uh, in your household one way or another. I encourage you to take your bullet at home and look at those and go over those. So again, I want to leave you with how are you reflecting, reflecting your relationship with Christ in all of your relationships? Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.